Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to the 85th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you into our world uh, of financial markets and financial planning from the past week. So good morning to you, Matt. Good morning, Mark. Um, got a lot of stuff for everybody this week. Um, might be a little bit longer of a of a show today, but um, but we'll just we'll do our best to make our way through all this material that we have. I'm looking forward to it. We got some good stuff this week for listeners. Yeah, we do. We do. Uh, so as always, we'll take the first few minutes to recap the performance here for the year for the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on February 17th. And the data is from Coifin. S&P 500 index is up 4.67% for the year. The Dow up 3.29%. The NASDAQ up 9% for the year. IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index up 14.3% for the year. The Vanguard International ETF X United States up 7.05% for the year. Uh, the three-month T-bill currently yielding 0.04%. The two-year Treasury yielding 0.11%. And the 10-year Treasury Yield is sitting at 1.29%. Wow, a lot of movement in that 10-year, Mark. Yeah, so U.S. bonds were, you know, we're kind of weak with yields moving higher uh, for continued future inflation expectations. Um, And the 10-year U.S. Treasury closed above 1.2% for the first time since early 2020 last week. So, I mean, what does that tell you? In my opinion, people are expecting potentially higher inflation. And they're looking at bonds saying, why am I going to lock in these long-term rates at those levels? It just doesn't make sense. Right, right. So, you know, to remind listeners, you know, bond prices and bond yields have an inverse relationship, right? So, you know, rising bond yields signifies, you know, money moving out of bonds um, and, you know, historically moving in, into the stock market. So, And I think it's another signal of, quote unquote, risk on, per se, that people aren't seeking the safe haven of U.S. treasuries. I think it's another potential indicator. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, with all the risk on indicators that we're getting right now, that's a that's another one for sure. Um, stocks last week were positive for the most part, um, with gains uh, focused on small caps and technology. Um, the only other thing really in terms of headlines that we have is that we continue to see COVID cases come down. Um, there's a research piece by First Trust Advisors on February 13th, and their research showed that based upon official positive tests, estimated additional infections and vaccine doses that roughly 40% of the U.S. population currently has antibodies. Uh, and that means we're currently over halfway to the 70% goal of herd immunity. Um, and they project vaccinations uh, going forward and showing that we are likely to get the rest of the way there in mid to late April as vaccines continue to do most of that heavy lifting. Maybe it's the simple mindedness of me, but I don't know how they come up with that data. I don't know how accurate that data is. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) And so, you know, I think it's worthy to kind of share that, but obviously this is just one firm's opinion. But I think the broader picture, Mark, is it does point to late spring, early summer, 
you could definitely see a resurgence of the American consumer getting out there. Yeah, I think there's going to be a huge, huge spending boom this summer. I do. Th- I agree, Mark. And, you know, over the weekend, I saw on Twitter, there were pictures of people going on winter break, mm-hmm. and it showed the um, waiting line for customs at Cancun Airport. And yeah, I'm it was telling you, it was insanity. It was insanity. Mm-hmm. So, you know... I think there's a lot of pent-up demand, as you kind of indicated there, Mark, and I would agree. I think you're going to see a lot of spending this summer. Yeah, I've even kind of seen it just in my own personal life with um, purchasing airline tickets. You know, for relatively short flights from Dayton, you can see that the prices are are going up. So I think that there definitely is the demand there. So it wouldn't agree. surprise me that, you know, by April, May, and then into June that – a lot of people are going to be traveling. I would agree, sir. So um, so starting off uh, this week with tweets, articles, and research that caught our eyes, uh, I'll start first. Great. And the first one that I have was an excerpt from Morgan Housel's blog on February 15th titled The Best Story Wins. So I have actually two things uh, by Morgan this week I'm going to be talking about. And I think they're two of my favorite articles I've ever read by him. And I probably have said that before, but um, he just provides such valuable insight and, you know, relates it to things that people can um, relate to in their personal lives and yeah. makes, you know, the connection back to the market. So um, he starts off by saying this, a truth that applies to many fields, which can frustrate some as much as it energizes others is that the person who tells the most compelling story wins. Not who has the best idea or the right answer, just whoever tells a story that catches people's attention and gets them to nod their heads. Same with Tesla, isn't it? The company is worth seven times more than GM and Ford combined. Not because it built a good business, but because Elon Musk is good at getting people's attention. Customers, investors, Twitter followers, he's told them all a good story and the best story wins. Great ideas explained poorly can go nowhere while old or wrong ideas told compellingly can ignite a revolution. Morgan Freeman can narrate a grocery list and bring people to tears while an uh, inarticulate (laughs) scientist might cure disease and go unnoticed. So I thought this was really good because I think it really is. A lot of the things in our industry, it's about telling a story. And I like to point these things out because, you know, investors can fall in love with the story of a stock or an ETF or an industry, and it could put blinders on the investor, you know, like we've seen with Tesla, Um, you know, or they really like what a certain money manager has to say, like Buffett or Stan Drunkenmiller, um, because they can tell a good story, right? And, you know, I just wanted to take this opportunity for listeners to, you know, never get too attached to a company, a philosophy, a famous investor, just because the story's good and you believe in the story. You have to be nimble. You have to look at things objectively. Um, and, you know, and that's really, you know, the way that people attract investors like the big money managers, right? Yep. They tell a good story. It's not showing people exactly what their process is it's just telling a good story because us as americans we love to hear a good story so you know i think people just need to be really careful um with that type of stuff right 
I would absolutely agree, Mark. I just I jotted down a couple of notes as you were speaking. You know, first thing that comes to mind, you use Buffett as an example. And everyone likes to quote Buffett, but no one likes to quote Buffett's time horizon on stuff, mm-hmm. right? There's times where he might not buy anything for six months, 12 months. His average hold is five plus years. Imagine that right now in this marketplace. Mm-hmm. Doesn't happen. Right. Okay. The other side of it is, as people get caught up in the idea of the storytelling, I think you're seeing a lot of the greed factor come back into play in the markets. And we've talked about this a lot in the podcast, the two guiding emotions of fear and greed. And you are starting to see some more pockets of the greed factor. But right now, in my opinion, it's kind of on the peripheral. It's on the satellite kind of areas of investing. And it is something that is notable to watch. But from my perspective, I would agree. I think you got to, at times, take a step back, look at the fundamentals of these investments, because obviously you don't want to get caught up in this. Let's just take Tesla as an example with Elon Musk, and we're not going to give an opinion on the name, but one could get caught up in everything he's saying doesn't mean everything he touches is going to turn to gold. He does not necessarily have the Midas touch. Mm -hmm. We have to remember that. Yeah, I agree. But I think it's also, you know, important to note that, you know, everyone I've had a lot of conversations with people that are like, I don't you know, I don't understand why Tesla, you know, is their stock price has gone through the roof. Because if you look at the fundamentals of the company, if you look at how many cars they're churning out, how many, you know, what they're charging for their cars, it just doesn't make sense. But I think that's the beautiful thing about the stock market, Matt, is it doesn't have to make sense. It doesn't have to that's follow. That's what makes a market. It doesn't have to follow a, a econo- economics book that, you know, Tesla is extremely overvalued. So the stock price has to plummet. It doesn't work that way. With stocks, it's supply and demand. It's a market, you know. So if the demand is high for Tesla's stock, it's going to go up, right? They're right. It's all supply and demand. It really is. And I think I just want to remind listeners that, you know, especially after the, you know, dot-com bubble, um, there were a lot of people who were looking at it saying, all right, I start to want to see a return on my money. You can't perpetually lose money from an earnings perspective and keep getting a pass. And there are a lot of names that have been getting a pass for a very long time, and they could continue to get a pass for another several months or several years. But at a certain point, investors are going to demand a return on their money one way or another. And that's where, you know, you are playing with time decay. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point, a name like Tesla is going to really have to be producing at some point some good earnings because people aren't going to keep buying into this. Eventually, the big earnings will come. Eventually, these big ideas and the big earnings will come. People are going to at some point going to want to see it. And I don't know when that day of reckoning is going to come, but it always does. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, it, it's really interesting, but I think it, that's just one good example of, you know, it doesn't need to make sense for it to happen. Right. True. You know? Yeah. Um, okay. The next piece that I had was a blog post by Ben Carlson on February 9th on his blog, A Wealth of Common Sense. And this was titled, um, The Investment Strategy That Makes Your Life Easier. Okay. Here we go. I like this. So he says, after peaking in the fall of 2007 with the onset of the great financial crisis, the U.S. stock market didn't hit a new all-time highs until again in the spring in 2013. And you kind of touched on some of the things in here last week, Matt, when you did your own calculation. Um, At this point, the S&P 500 was already up more than 150% from the bottom in March of 2009. 
there would be 45 new all-time highs in total in 2013, a year in which the S&P 500 rose more than 30%. At this point, people became worried the easy money had been made too far too fast. Oh, I love where this is going. The market didn't care. There were 53 new highs in 2014, 10 more in 2015, and an additional 18 in 2016. Then things really ramped up in 2017 with 62 new all-time highs, which was followed by 18 in 2018. But it can't go any higher than that, Mark. Then in 2019, the market was again up more than 30% plus 35 new highs. Surely this couldn't persist. Of course not. In 2020, there were 32 new highs on the year during a global pandemic. That's a total of 281 brand spanking new highs since 2013. So I just want to say, please remember this, everybody, when that little voice in your head tells you that there is no way the market can continue to go higher because it always can. I very well put, Mark. <laughs> you know, it kind of reminds me of this kind of adage where people look at it and say, hey, it's going to it has to go down. I have to take action. You got to remember the market likes to climb a wall of worry. Mm-hmm. When there are no longer excuses to invest, that's when they're at a high point. Mm-hmm. So when all of a sudden it feels comfortable to put money into the market, that's usually not a good time. Right. Right. And vice versa. When it, you know, when it feels uncomfortable to buy something. Statistically speaking, generally yeah. speaking, right. very broad statement. It's yeah. usually a, a better time. So he continues on and says the entire way up, there have been naysayers warning about stretched valuations, the Fed, government debt, interest rates, euphoria, and bubbles. And to be fair, there have been corrections and crashes in this time. Since 2013, the S&P 500 has experienced drawdowns of 12%, 13%, 10%, 20%, and 34%. And a drawdown for listeners is an an all-time high to the low point before it recovers, for people that don't understand that. Um. You know, and we talked about this, Matt, that, you know, this is normal during a bull market, right? We want to see these type of things, because if you think back to the early 2000s with the tech bubble, it was constantly every day, every week, every month, market going higher, market going higher, market going higher. And in my opinion, that's an unhealthy market. Sure. A healthy market is when, you know, we stair step and then we come back 5, 10, 15%. Then we continue to move higher, come back down 5, 10, 15%. That is healthy. As much as people think that it's not and that a 10% correction is a crash, that is a sign to me that we are in a healthy environment for the stock market. Yeah. I mean, my other reply there, Mark, is how you remind listeners on a continual basis what is the negatives or the price you pay for equity-like returns? You have to endure the volatility of that. Mm-hmm. It's not every day the market's up a little bit and it's nice and easy peasy. If it were, you'd have a lot more people in the stock market. Right. So I, I love how you remind listeners. And the returns wouldn't be as good. That's right. You have to remind listeners that that is the byproduct of getting equity-like returns is mm-hmm. you have to deal with the volatility. Right. And I think it goes back to what I said last week and what you just said now, which is I think investors need to start looking at volatility as an opportunity. Mm -hmm. Because when you invest, you have a longer term time horizon. When you're doing trades based upon where a position is going to be this week or next week, that's not investing. That's speculating. Mm -hmm. There's a difference. There is. And I think that if 
the listeners can embrace when that volatility occurs and change that lens, change that dialogue to make it appear it's an opportunity. I think you're going to see a, a mind a mind shift change. And again, it's your time horizon that allows you to do that. If right. your time horizon's a day or a week or a month, that's not investing. Right. That's speculating. Right. Yeah. Thanks for pointing out that difference there. Um, the last one of these that I had, this is another one by Morgan Housel, uh, titled Unfortunate Investing Traits on his blog, The Collaborative Fund. And I really encourage people to go visit, you know, his blog and read his stuff because it really is, it's good, really good material. Uh, so this one is a little longer, so um, just bear with me here. Okay. So he starts by saying, Napoleon's definition of a military genius was the man who can do the average thing when everyone else around him is losing his mind. So I think this is pretty timely, Matt, especially with everything that we witnessed going on with you know GameStop and every other heavily shorted stock the past few weeks, mm-hmm. um, that this is just a subtle reminder to stick to your plan. So the person who won coming out of that looked at it and said, oh, I don't have to waste any mind space on this because this isn't the way my plan works. Yep. Right? Yep. So he also says what he meant, I think, is that the most wars are lost rather than won. The final outcome is driven more by one side's blunder than the other's brilliance. One screw-up can overwhelm a dozen smart decisions that precede it. So even if strategy is crucial, the expert is rarely preoccupied asking, how can I be great? The obsession is, how can I sure I'm at least average and never a disaster during the most important moments? So, Matt, how perfect is this? In my opinion, this totally relates to investing because one bad mistake can blow up your entire portfolio, right? Yes. And, you know, whether that's, you know, shorting, selling selling in March uh, 23rd of last year and not getting back in the market. Yep. Or shorting or, or, you know, using leverage, you know, it could be a bunch of different things. But one bad mistake or just dipping your toes in something that you don't understand or that you've never done before can have a huge impact. Margin. Right. Right. You know, at a lot of these, um, you know, retail investor shops, they default margin automatically. And when you open up the account, most people don't even know what the term means. Right. I think there. I was listening to uh, Ben Carlson and Michael Batnick's podcast the other day, and they they were reading a story that I think it was on Robinhood. It was like a teenager got approved for like seventy grand a margin or something like that. I heard about that <laughs> insanity, just crazy. But uh, anyways, so Morgan goes on to highlight a few um, unfortunate traits that commonly prevent investors from doing the average thing. Okay. So number one is personalizing wins and externalizing losses. If you write a piece of computer code and it works, you can take credit for it. If it works because you did the right thing. If it doesn't work, you did the wrong thing, black and white. Investing isn't like that. So many forces collide at once. Economics, politics, business, markets, psychology. That there's more leeway to create a narrative about why something did or didn't happen. The most common narrative is that wins are caused by your decisions and losses are the consequence of some external force, usually policymakers. Unless you've enjoyed a period of success that you realize you had nothing to do with or can admit that a long period of loss was due to your own mistake, you'll have a hard time grasping reality in a way that lets you do at least the average thing when everyone else is losing their minds. I love this. I do too. And, you know, 
I know we may disagree on this a little bit, but in my opinion, it's like going back to our, our conversation to me, it doesn't, it doesn't matter why, why, why Tesla is up however many percent it is over the past two years. To me, it, all that matters is that it is. Sure. Right. Yeah. It's moved. I don't, I don't really care why or why it isn't. Why, yeah. why did that the happen price or action. why didn't it happen? Yeah. The price action. Right. Um, so I, I, I tend to agree with that one. The second one that he says is an ignorance of what I'd call normal disasters. If markets never crashed, they wouldn't be risky. So we just talked about this a yes, little sir. earlier, right? If they weren't risky, they'd get very expensive as all potential returns were wrung out. True. If, if you you get, mentioned that earlier. Yeah. If you get caught up in a period when you lose a third of your money and it stays that way for a year or two, you have not been hit by a hundred year storm. You're just experienced the base rate of investing par for the course. That's why they're normal disasters. And again, this is why we talk consistently about how sell-offs and corrections are normal, you know, all the time here, and they will continue to happen. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it goes back to what we talked about. Look at it over the lens of an opportunity because your time horizon is on your side. Right. And I think this is my favorite quote out of the out of the whole whole article here. He says, if you're flying on an airplane, normal means everything is smooth and calm. <laughs> Investing is closer to whitewater rafting. <laughs> and I know you have actually an interesting story about <laughs> white rotter rafting that I kind of want to get into here. Oh, um, you're going to get wet and tossed around with a decent chance of minor injuries. Many investing blunders occur when people expect normal to be a period when nothing goes wrong, when in fact it's normal for things to constantly be breaking and falling apart. What a great analogy. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to tell people about your, your sure. white water rafting sure. experience? I, um, I guess it'd be the equivalent of uh, somebody not having any investment experience or any knowledge opening up a Robinhood account with $100,000 leverage and going crazy. Mm -hmm. So the equivalent for me is uh, I was working in a major brokerage firm. A trip was set up to, uh, I believe, West Virginia in a place called The Gully. Mm -hmm. Okay. And for listeners, I guess this is like the creme de la creme of one of the places to whitewater raft. And it was an opening day when they were opening up the dam. Okay. And it was crazy. So we show up, there's news crews there. And, um, and just I, to point out to listeners, you're not a, the whitewater rafting type of guy. Right? I'm not the whitewater rafting type of guy. <laughs> That's not I'm what not you would guy, do for fun. I am the 180 of Bear Grylls. Okay. <laughs> I'm the guy you take when you want to have a good dinner, not when you need to survive overnight. Right. Okay. So we're sitting there and we go up and I'm signing this waiver. And next thing you know, we're not on an eight person boat. We got signed up for a four man fast boat and I'm signing this waiver that I have extensive experience. <laughs> okay. I did not advocate this whatsoever. So we start going down and I got to tell you, uh, I lost track of like how long it took us to get down, but it seemed like it took forever. Like every like rapids we hit was a four or a five. There were no twos and threes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So at the very, very end, there was a fall. There was a, um, like a waterfall and it. The length was like 12 or 14 feet drop. Okay. So, um, because we were in the fast boat, we were way above everybody else who started. We were down river. No one else was there. So it was me, three other guys at the office and our guide. So we go down the waterfall, we crash and um, next thing you know, I'm down river by myself. No one else is there. 
and there was this rock above the water and it had the green moss on it. It was really slippery and mm -hmm. I was exhausted. And I looked down and there's another set of rapids. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't know if I could go through these next rapids. So I'm holding on, I'm holding on, I'm holding on. And eventually I lose my grip. And in the, the thoughts that went through my mind at that point, as I lose my grip and I'm alone and I have to go through the next set of rapids by myself, it was not a comfortable feeling for me. So I, I actually went through the rapids. I was able to keep my head above water for most of the time. And then eventually the guide came by herself with the oar and she, she it was, a, it was a female. She got me to the side and I was able to make it. So at the end, they're passing out beers and all these people are, Hey, that was a great time. That was a great time. And I thought to myself, I'm never doing a four or five rapid ever again in my life. Right. So that's the equivalent. <laughs> it's like, I never done it. And I just got thrown into that scenario. Right. It was hard. Right. Exactly. And that's, you know, the equivalent you could, you know, imagine for people is that if they put 50,000 in an investment account and they're trading options and they lose it all. But it takes those experiences to, to know, hey, you know, I can't do that again or I don't want to do that. That's again. outside of my risk tolerance. Right. Exactly. And that that's what forms your I think your investing philosophy in the future is is going through a time where, where you know, you blow up an account. I've been through it. I know you probably uh, yeah, been through absolutely. it it's on my personal sure. account that I'm trying different things. And next thing you know, account balance is down to zero. <laughs> But, you know, that's how you learn in this industry. And I thought I just thought that was funny. And what a great analogy by him. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to steal that one for sure. Um, OK, so number three is assuming experience in a past era provides valuable insight into this era. A lot of blunders come from investors who lived through one era and expect the current era to play out in an identical way. Oh, this is big when it doesn't frustration often comes through the hard part here is realizing that some things never change but even more things never repeat and matt to me i feel like people do this with the financial crisis in 07 and 08 because everyone believes that every single recession has to look just like that one because it was the most painful uh experience that most people have ever gone through and that's ingrained in their minds absolutely right? but not every recession is going to look like that so look at the recession that we just had in 2020 didn't look anything like what we had in 07 and 08 yeah i mean look at look at clients that we have that were born in the 20s okay we still have some and if you look at their mindset it's generally a lot different from their kids mm -hmm. because they had to grow up and endure the great recession at that time. And so they, they assumed it's always going to be this way, right? Just like you insinuated. And I think it's an excellent point that people have to remember. So yeah, I appreciate I you bringing that up. Yeah, I think it is too. And I think this applies, um, you know, to the interest rate environment that we're in right now. Everyone's like, well, why, you know, why, why aren't, you know, money market funds or CDs paying, you know, four or 5% anymore? It's just it's a different type of environment. And everyone's like, well, you know, it has to get back to that point because, you know, it was that way in the past. No, it doesn't. It does not mean that things have to play out exactly like they did in the past. And, you know, I've said it before, so people might get annoyed with me saying this. But, you know, I always like the quote that history, um, history never repeats. It always rhymes. I like right? that. And I did not make that up. So I don't want people to think that I did. But I really like it because I think it always looks somewhat similar. But you know, each day is a new day and, you know, things aren't going to be exactly, you know, as they were in the past. I would agree. 
Um, number four is realizing where the boundaries of your risk tolerance are by going past them, which can cause irreparable financial and psychological damage. So this kind of <laughs> refers back to the, the white water rafting, right? Yep. The only way people learn where the boundaries of their risk tolerance is when they blow past them and look back with hindsight, realizing they took too much risk to begin with. Many investors, especially new investors, have no clue how much risk they can endure. And when they think about a future when they might lose money, they underestimate the psychological torment of the uncertainty that arises when the world faces a situation that could push the stock market down, say, 30% in a month. Or what it's like to tell your spouse, kids, coworkers, or neighbors that the money you used to brag about is now gone. There it is. Right? So, again, it goes back to our point that we just made. It takes people going through some hard times with this stuff to actually learn, right? Absolutely. And this is a, a normal part of the process. So if you have gone through this, that's normal. We all have. So it kind of makes me think about, you know, the whole fear and greed factor, the two guiding emotions. You go back to February and March of last year. What was the mindset then, Mark? It was the feeling that this was going to continue. There was no sight and end. It was... It's going to keep going down. This is not going to recover quickly. This is going to continue like this for as far as people could think. Now, I think there are pockets of the market where it's the opposite. This is going to keep going up. It's going to keep going up. It's going to keep going up. And I just think that, you know, you have extremes. And in certain areas of the market, the pendulum has swung to the greed factor. And it looks so easy. And I can attest and tell you it is far from that. Mm hmm and just as fast as certain asset classes have gone up, just remember, listeners, they could do the opposite real quick. Right. Yeah, it was, or I think I read it. It was a tweet or, or I was reading a piece of research by uh, Ophir Gottlieb. Um, he's a research, research analyst in our, in our industry. And he said something along the lines of what I know is going to happen this year and every year thereafter that markets are going to go up, they're going to go down. But more often than not, they're going to go up more than they go down over a long period of time. That's an accurate statement. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty certain statement, right? Yep. And it goes back to what I've what I've been saying about having, you know, the time horizon that investors have in this type of market right now is their biggest advantage. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Um, and the other thing that I want to point out with that, too, is when people think or they say, you know, they can handle a 50% drawdown. They can handle their account getting cut in Ooh, half. This is going to be an interesting point. Typically, I've found that it's usually half of that. I would agree with that. So when people actually do and you're freaking out and think you can't tolerate it anymore, I think that's a sign that you need to revisit your risk tolerance. Or time horizon. Or time horizon. Right. Okay. Last and not least, um, number five, he says, is a tendency to be influenced by the actions of other people who are playing a different financial game than you are. There you go. It happens all the time. If you start taking cues from people playing a different game than you are, you are bound to be fooled and eventually become lost since different games have different rules and different goals. This goes beyond investing, how you save, how you spend, what your business strategy is, how you think about money. When you retire and how you think about risk may all be influenced by the actions and behaviors of people who are playing different games than you are. Few things cause more financial problems, regrets, frustrations, 
and the inability to do the average thing when everyone else around you is losing their mind. Well put. Yeah, again, it just goes to show you that not everyone has the same financial situation. You can't be, you know, making financial decisions based on other people's situations, your neighbor, your parents, That's your right. cousins, your coworkers. That's right. Right? You know, you don't know the size of their positions. You don't know their risk tolerance. You don't know their time horizon. You know, there's a lot of factors that go into it. And yeah. remember, psychologically, people only share their home runs. The good stuff. Yeah. 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 All right. I'll stop hogging the mic and turn it over to you. You got it, my friend. I got some good data points. Uh, kind of, let's just say, data points I don't think are being talked about enough. Okay. So the first one is I saw a tweet from uh, an individual, Teddy Valet. He's the founder and CIO of Pre-Valet Global. I hope I pronounced that correctly. On February 14th, his uh, tweet was in regards to job postings on Indeed in the USA. And this chart mark was a percentage change in job postings since February 1 of 2020, pre-COVID, and seasonally adjusted to January 29th of this year, 2021. And you know what? We're finally back to the same number of job postings on Indeed pre-COVID. I take that as a bullish indicator on the economy. Yeah, yeah, I do, I do too. I think that that's, that's really important for things, you know, for people to get back on track is to have job positions that are open to apply for. Right? Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. So I think that's, that's and what does that tell you about the underlying economics of these companies if they're willing to hire? They're getting better. There you go. So next point I have is in regards to inflows into stock or equity funds. I've referenced this before, but this data goes back to the early 2000s. The source of this data is Bank of America Global Investment. And um, the date on this was just a couple of days ago. And the chart shows the largest weekly global equity inflows going back to 2000. Now, I referenced this a couple of months ago. I'm sorry, a couple of weeks ago, because it was the highest ever then. Mm -hmm. And we surpassed it one other time. So again, I have another indicator that I want to throw out there. Okay, because one could see this mark and think, well, all this money's going in, we have to be at a top, mm -hmm. right? Kind of similar to what we were talking about earlier. So to build on this, there was a tweet from Macro Charts on February 13th, okay? Even though we saw the largest one-week inflow, that does not mean that everyone is long equities. The global equity flows have just reversed just one-fifth of the record outflows we've seen since 2018. So what this chart shows is it shows the flows of money coming in and out of equity funds on a global basis. And just because we saw the largest one week inflows, we've only reversed one fifth of the outflows we've seen since 2018. And so it goes back to some of my comments I've said in the past in regards to the market. And this is my editorial slant. After the COVID sell off of February and March, you will also agree with this. The markets are at, a, at an all-time high right now. Does that mean that everybody who sold in February or March is fully back invested into this market? It does not. Mm -hmm. And there are still a lot of cash and individuals that are on this sidelines. And I think the, that a lot of uh, retail investors think, well, if we're at an all-time high and we're seeing these equity flows we are in the last couple of weeks, that must mean 
we're at the high point and it can't do it. It can't, it can't do any better than this. Right. And I have statistical data showing the flows that we've only reversed 20% from what has come out over the past roughly two and a half years. Yeah. And that's, what's kind of interesting to me is that even though we did have outflows from stocks, it sounds like since 2018 markets kept going higher. Right. So that, so it doesn't necessarily inflows and, and outflows of, of, of equity funds doesn't necessarily indicate if the market is going to go higher or lower. Right. That's right. Because if you look back at the data, they reached a low point in uh, from the um, great financial crisis of 07 to 08. Fund flows didn't bottom out till 2013 on the chart. Right. So it took another three years for them to bottom out before then they topped in 2018. Yeah. I just yeah. thought it was interesting, and yeah, I wanted to provide the analogy. I didn't want people to see record inflows and think that, oh, we've completely reversed what we've seen the last couple of years in equity mm -hmm. funds globally. That's not the case. Yeah. I got one more, Mark. This is an interesting chart. Uh, this is from Top Down Charts on uh, February 14th, uh, Mr. Thomas's research firm that we had on the podcast recently. And it shows small caps... Uh, their performance as a proportion of total market cap. And the chart that they're showing is the S&P 600. That's like Stern and Poor's competing index against Russell's um, 2000. Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah, and it, small cap stocks. Correct. Yep. And it shows its percentage uh, versus the S&P 1500. The S&P 1500 is a... Um, uh, aggregate of the S&P 500, which is a large cap index, the S&P 400, which is a mid cap index, mid sized companies, mm -hmm. and the S&P 600, which is small size companies. Yep. So we don't talk about it a lot. But the S&P 1500 is kind of a way to look at the stock market in so general, everything, everything, right? small, mid, large. Yeah, that's right. And so when you look at small, mid and large, this chart is starting to indicate some of the outperformance of small cap versus mid and large. Mm -hmm. And this is not a direct recommendation for or against small caps. Rather, I wanted to show a chart that the last time we really saw a consistent outperformance of small caps was at this level was at this level. And it was back in 2000, roughly. Mm -hmm. And small caps versus mid and large outperformed for about six or seven years. Yeah. And so I just want to kind of throw it out there as a data point that I think listeners should be watching. And yet again, I want to reiterate, this is not a rec recommendation for or against small caps. But this would be a logical place for small caps to start performing pretty well. It would. And I want to highlight it to bring listeners attention to it, Mark, so they could be watching this on their own as well. Okay. And we'll make sure this gets um, posted to our social media. Got it. Okay. Back to you, my friend. All right. So um, the last thing that we'll go over today is the financial planning topic of the week. And this uh, was a article um, or excuse me, a blog post written by uh, Nick Maguli on his blog, uh, The 10 Biggest Money Mistakes or excuse me, <laughs> on his blog of dollars and data titled The 10 Biggest Money Mistakes. Okay? He always has good stuff. You referenced him before in the past. Yeah, he's um, he works with uh, Ritholtz Wealth Management, yep. and he does a lot of like planning topics, you know, that are that suits our financial planning topic of the week pretty well. So good. I like to talk about his stuff. Um, so there's 10 different things that I want to go over and kind of get your opinion on, Matt. Okay. 
Um, so again, these are 10 big money mistakes that he thinks, uh, he thinks people make cutting spending instead of raising income. Why? Because cutting spending has its limits. On the other hand, there's no upper limit when it comes to raising your income. So find small ways to grow your income today that turns into big ways to grow it tomorrow. I would agree. You can only trim so much fat before you start trimming uh, muscle. Mm -hmm. Number two, not thinking like an owner. And to me, Matt, this means, you know, always have that drive to better yourself, always innovate, never give up, find a way to get it done, take control of the situation um, and never, um, I guess, never let your guard down on what you can be doing to, you know, to increase your financial position. I would agree with that statement. And I would just say that we are in a time period of instant gratification. And a lot of those things you mentioned take time and that's normal. Mm hmm. And just because you see people in the news or you're a friend or family member get rich quick in whatever way they did it, just realize that those are anomalies and it takes work and time. That's when to remind people. Right. Yeah. And that's a really good point, Matt, because I mean, think about all the businesses that were started that those businesses didn't become successful overnight. No, it's a lot of hardship. I know you went through it specifically with our business. Sure. You know, things were you know challenging for a long, long time, long time, right? And, you know, that's part of thinking like an owner, understanding that the instant gratification isn't going to be there the next night. That's right. This stuff takes time. And, you know, if you translate that to your investing life, I think you're going to be in a pretty good spot. I think it'll make you more successful. Number three is overemphasis on small wins versus big wins. I see people who happily drive across town to save $40 on a television, yet won't spend five hours preparing for a salary negotiation that is 100 times more impactful. Boom. Yes, saving $40 is great, but making 4000 more a year is even greater. Um, and I, I really like this because I think you have to focus on things that actually move the needle. Cutting out your $5 latte every day or every week, in my opinion, is not going to move the needle. No. Um, you know, and this I got in this mindset from um, I think it was Ramit Satis book. Uh, it was called I'll, I Will Teach You to Be Rich. And, you know, he talks about how a lot of people focus on, you know, saving five bucks on their Wi-Fi or their streaming provider. And it's like, turn that on its head, make the big decisions like making more money or preparing for a salary negotiation that's going to make an impact. You spending 10 hours of gathering all of the research and information you need to go into your boss's office and say, this is why I deserve a raise that is more impactful than cutting your spending. Absolutely. So I like that one. Number four is timing the market. No one knows the future or where the market is going. 2020 taught us that more than any taught us this more than anything. Being right about something and making money off of it are two different things. The, the different differentiator is timing. Simply put, Matt, I think, you know, this is just sticking to your game plan. And the simple way to do that is to auto contribute to your accounts every month, right? Or, or or max out your IRA in the beginning of the year if you have the ability to do that. That's right. Just automate this stuff. Number five is borrowing too much. They say it takes money to make money, which is why borrowing to invest could be such a profitable strategy. Unfortunately, if things go south, you could lose it all. As I've discussed previously, you can know the future and still lose your shirt if you borrow too much. Remember, the only guarantee when it comes to borrowing money is your monthly payment. That's it. That's it. Number six, 
paying attention to other people's finances. And I'm not going to harp on this because we just talked about this and we've talked about this several times before, but focus on your own situation. Yes. Don't pay attention to any other, other person. Absolutely. Number seven, another thing we bring up a lot is too much lifestyle creep, right? So some lifestyle creep is fine and actually we encourage it, but the data suggests that spending more than 50% of your raise pushes your financial independence further away. The reasoning is simple. Every dollar you don't save is a dollar you spend. And, you know, for listeners that haven't listened to last week's episode number 84, we discussed this very strategy um, on a blog post by Ashby Daniels uh, last week. So yep. check that out if you want more details on that. Number eight is investing in products you don't understand. If you can't explain it to a five-year-old, then you probably don't understand it. And if you don't understand it, then you are probably taking risks you can't even imagine. So I think, Matt, this is the driver behind us keeping it simple here for clients. Um, and some might even say that it's boring, but I would argue that boring is good. That's right. Um, you know, give yourself, uh, you know, the ability to have a play account with, you know, money you can afford to lose and you can invest on, you know, whatever you want to do. But just understand that, you know, that that's your play money. That's not your long term money. Yeah. You know, I always see these things go through cycles in our industry to where, you know, these firms will create these complex, you know, financial instruments. And I'm using my my wording very carefully. You know, one of those hot areas I, I, I see lately is something called like a structured product. And they come in a lot of different uh, forms. You know, most clients don't understand them. They're sophisticated. They don't have good liquidity. And I'm giving you an example that boring and simple is fine. Mm -hmm. And if you have that drive to do something more complex or exotic or take more risk, have a play account, size it appropriately. If you lost it all, you'd still sleep well at night. Right. And mm -hmm. have your core money invested in a good, solid, long-term strategy. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Number nine is paying too much in fees. So I think with this one, Matt, it's just people really understanding the fees that they're paying, whether that's from, you know, investing in mutual funds, ETFs, advisory fees, uh, annuity fees, um, you know, understand exactly what you're paying because there are hidden costs associated with a lot of things that a lot of people don't understand that they're paying behind the scenes. Yeah. Um, I mean, if someone got a 401k statement from Fidelity and, you know, it actually showed what the cost is of XYZ mutual fund purely for the given year in dollars, I think there'd be a lot of people upset. Yeah. I'm just going to say it. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Last but not least, obsessing over not having enough money. Only about one in six retirees sell down their assets within a given year. In fact, many more leave behind hundreds of thousands of dollars in inheritances. And the way I think, Matt, to not obsess over something like this is, again, put a plan together while you still have a long time horizon and you're young and just follow it and you'll never have to worry about it ever again. That's right. That's right. So. Um, so that's all I had this week. That was a really was good financial planning topic of the week. Yeah, good job, Mark. Good. Um, anything else before we wrap up? No, no, I'm, I have very little to say at this point. Okay. I feel like I got it all out there. Yeah. Well, hope everyone is uh, staying warm. I know we've experienced at least the most amount of snow that I've ever seen in Dayton since I've lived here, but this is just par for the course up in Rochester, New York, baby. <laughs> I'm I'm used to this stuff. Everyone around Dayton is is freaking out, arms. and I'm like, oh, this is this is nothing. You guys haven't seen uh, big snow yet. So, how much snow have your folks had? 
Um, I think they have a little more than we have right now, and we have what about a foot on the ground? I would right say now, probably. So yeah. they probably may have a foot and a half, something like that. But they're used to dealing with it up there. Oh yeah, oh yeah, very used to it. Schools don't close. No, no, absolutely <laughs> not. And it's crazy to see like, you know, with the little amount of snow that we get to make schools close here is mind-boggling to me because when I was in you know elementary school, middle school, and high school, it had to be a a whiteout blizzard with like four feet of snow, like can't get out of your garage to have a snow day or else, or else you were going to, you were going to school. Listeners, I'm turning my head. I'm looking at Jenna because Jenna, this is the point where, you know, Mark is, he's getting older quick here. You know, he, he walked to school in the snow, uphill, both ways, wide out. I love it. I I feel deprived of my snow days when I was a child. (laughs) To everyone else to hear, it's like you have, you know, you an inch of straw. snow. Yeah. Yeah. You have an inch of snow and everything's fine. I just remember like waking up early every morning to check the TV if we would say Fairport schools closed and it never, never ever happened. Now, and now it's like the night before at like five o'clock. They're already shut They already shut down schools for, for here in, in Ohio. Anyways. Um, but yeah. So I love that. Hope everyone stays warm and has a good rest of uh, their week and a good weekend. And we will be back with you next week for another episode. See you soon, listeners. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. And also check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. Here you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words, questions, and topics in the subject line to mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com, and we'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.